This morning's reading is taken from Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, where they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray before I start. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us by your spirit and through your word. Help us to listen humbly and joyfully as we remember everything you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, City Church, once again. It's, it's really a privilege uh, to be back here. I, I always am excited and look forward to, to coming here and being with you and seeing some familiar faces. Um, and we're going to look at the whole of Psalm 73 today. And uh, when I was initially talking to Patrick, I, I said, is 28 verses going to be okay? And he proudly bragged about you guys and said, 28 verses, no problem. So um, apparently you guys have been looking at full chapters of, or the whole letter of Philemon for that matter. Um, and uh, there's a, an insert uh, in the program of the whole of the psalm. We're going to re- be referring to it a lot. Or if you have your Bible with you and could keep that open, that would be a huge help to me. And, um, and the question we're going to answer today is this. Why bother with Christianity? Why bother with Christianity? To put the question another way, why should you or I or anyone else bother being a Christian and staying a Christian? 
Now, I've been trying to convince a friend of mine from high school for years to become a Christian, and to his credit, he tolerates my attempts. But he also graciously tells me that he finds it less than compelling. And I could see where he's coming from. He's doing really well without it. He has a wealthy family, lots of money in the bank. He, ju- he, ha- he just got his pilot's license, so he's always flying to like, fun places by himself. I just went to Denver to go skiing, you know. And on top of it, he's a nice guy. He's not one of those intolerable trust fund brats. Privilege for him means a responsibility to give back. And for him, that's not just empty, empty lip service. He's really, really generous with his time and money. Now, when it comes to the lottery of life, my friend has won, like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, the golden ticket. And it's not like he needs Christianity to clean up his act. So what does Christianity have to offer that he doesn't already have? Why bother with Christianity when he's doing fine without it? Now, this is the question Psalm 73 sets out to answer. Why should anyone bother with Christianity? Why? Now, in fact, the writer of Psalm 73, a man named Asaph, seems to be asking the very same question as he looks at the world around him. He starts the psalm in verse 1 with something that he knows should be true. But right now, he's having some serious doubts. Look at me with, look at, me, uh, with me at verse 1. Asaph writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In other words... Surely God is good to his people. And that's a pretty concise summary of what the Psalms have been promising so far. I know you guys have been looking at, uh, at the Psalms uh, recently. Now, the book of Psalms starts with two Psalms that in many ways set the stage for the rest of the Psalms that follow. In 2005, I took a year-long Bible training course, and we were quite often required to summarize passages in seven words or less. And it had to be seven words or less. And it's a lot harder than it sounds. I can't tell you how many times I begged for or desperately wanted another word or two. Anyway, here's my attempt to summarize the first two Psalms. Psalm 1, Blessed are those who love God's word. And Psalm 2, Blessed are those who love God's king. Now, I'm pretty sure that's seven words each, but I was a communications major, so you might want to check that. Now, those two big ideas set the, whole, set the stage for the whole book of Psalms. God promises to bless those who love his word, the Bible, and love his king, Jesus. Or Psalm 73 puts it, verse 1 puts it, Truly God is good to Israel the people who love his word and love his king. But as Asaph looks at the world around him, he's starting to wonder if first one is really true. Is God truly good to his people? He's starting to wonder because he looks around him and sees all the wrong people are doing well. Now, I think we can all appreciate at some time in our life of looking at the prosperity of some people and saying, you know what, it shouldn't be like that. Well, that's exactly how Asaph feels as he looks at the world around him. All the wrong people are doing well. In verse 9, he sees people shaking their fist at God's authority. Have a look at verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And in verse 11, he hears people scoffing at God's word. Have a look at verse 11. It says, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? 
In other words, the Bible is just a bunch of fairy tales, isn't it? You can't seriously be quoting the Bible as an authority. Now, if you think scoffing at the Bible is a modern innovation, think again. This psalm was written almost 3,000 years ago. And here's the troubling thing for Asaph. These people are getting away with it. In fact, they're doing well. Have a look at verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in troubles as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. As Asaph looks at the world around him, he concludes in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. In other words, all the wrong people are doing well. No wonder Asaph has doubts. God seems to be going back on the promises he made in Psalms 1 and 2. Remember, remember Psalms 1 and 2. Blessed are those who love God's word, and blessed are those who love God's king. But in Asaph's experience, the recipe for success seems to be disrespecting God's king and disregarding his word. And it's worth saying, too, that Asaph would define the wicked very differently than the way you and I might define them. When we think about the wicked, we think about the obvious choices, the uh, ISIS bombers or heroin dealers, sex traffickers, things like that. These are the wicked. But Asaph counts among the wicked those who ignore God's word and dishonor God's king. So my friend from high school, for all his generosity and decency, he would be counted among the wicked because he refuses to believe the Bible and he refuses to submit to Jesus. And Asaph says, this is what the wicked are like, always carefree, they increase in wealth. So why bother being one of God's people if God is not good to his people? Why bother with Christianity if people seem to be doing just fine without it? And Asaph very nearly concludes that it isn't worth bothering. Have a look at verse 13. Verse 13. Asaph writes this. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In vain. At this point of his life, if someone had asked him, do you enjoy being one one of God's people? His His honest answer would have been, no, not really. Right now, it just seems pointless. Now, my friend from high school once asked me that question, do you enjoy being a Christian? And to be honest, the question came at a really bad time. So I fudged the answer a little bit and said, it makes sense to be a Christian. He came back to me and said, I didn't ask you whether it made sense to be a Christian. I asked you whether you enjoy being one. And I briefly considered lying because I was trying to persuade him to become a Christian and, I wasn't, and if I wasn't enjoying it, how could I ask him to bother with it? But I told him the truth. To be honest, no, not right now. Now, you might expect to hear an answer like that from a slouch of a Christian like me, but, but Asaph was no, no slouch at all. He was a, one of a handful of men appointed by King David to lead worship at the temple. And he wrote a dozen psalms that ended up in the Bible. Now, if there had been a top 100 singles chart back then, Asaph would have had 12 songs on the list. It's pretty significant. Only King David would have had more. And as far as Bible characters go, that puts you in really good company. So even one of the most exemplary people in the Bible 
would have said at one point, you know, I'm not really sure if it's worth bothering. It just seems rather pointless. As he says in verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. It's surprising, isn't it? That's why I love the Bible. It's real, it deals with reality, it's honest, and it's refreshing. And Psalm 73 is an excellent example of that. Here we have an exemplary, exemplary Christian being honest, and his honest reflection is that at times it's not that enjoyable being a Christian. So why bother with Christianity if at times even Christians find it pointless? Well, Asaph very nearly says don't bother, but then, but then something changes his mind. Now, did you notice the, the turning point in the psalm? You might have missed it. It slips by pretty quickly. Have a look with me at verse 16. Verse 16. Asaph writes, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Something in the sanctuary turns his thinking completely around. Look at what he says after entering the sanctuary. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Verse 26. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 28, for me, it is good to be near God. Now, this is the same guy who just a moment ago was doubting God's goodness in verse 1, envying the wicked in verse 3, and saying don't bother in verse 13. So verse 17 is the turning point of the whole psalm. Something in the sanctuary turns his thinking completely around. Something he sees in the sanctuary persuades him that it is worth bothering with Christianity. So what is it? Now this is a slightly tricky one because we have a very sanitized view of sanctuaries. When we read the word sanctuary, we think shelter or chapel or maybe if a more slightly humane zoo if animals are your, your passion. But we need to be careful not to read our own experience of sanctuary into, into verse 17. Because I think Asaph tells us very clearly what he learned in the sanctuary. Let's look at verse 17 again. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So what does he learn there? What does Asaph learn in the sanctuary? He learns what will happen to the wicked. Let's read on because I think the following verses confirm this. Verse 18. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. So this is what he learns as he enters the sanctuary. He discerns that the way of the wicked will end in ruin and destruction. And of course this makes perfect sense when you read, the Bi- what, when you read what the Bible has to say about sanctuary, about the sanctuary, Uh, The book of Leviticus has quite a lot to say about it. 
if you want to read that later. But as for now, let's try to put ourselves in Asaph's shoes and see the sanctuary through his eyes. Now, as Asaph approached the sanctuary, he would have been greeted by Levite guards guarding the entrance. And, and these Levites would have been nothing like your, your friendly Walmart greeters. And they, they were bouncers, and their job was to keep people out. And they weren't mean in a vaguely threatening way like maybe nightclub bouncers are. They had authority to use lethal force. Now, I hope you had a friendlier greeting on your way in this morning, especially if you're new. But uh, Thankfully, Asaph had the right credentials so that Levites would have let him in. Now, once inside, Asaph would have seen a heavy curtain that blocked access to a restricted area called the holy place. And Asaph would have stayed well clear of that part of the sanctuary because the penalty for trespassing was death. And some of the earliest priests learned that the hard way, and and let's just say they weren't in the, the, the position to make that mistake again. All of this was set up to teach the people one simple lesson. God is holy and unapproachable, and unauthorized access is punishable by death. We can't simply waltz into his presence and demand an audience. It's it's his right to grant access on his terms. Now, I imagine standing before that curtain would have been rather like standing outside the gates of Buckingham Palace. I lived in London about 10 years ago, and if you've ever been to Buckingham Palace, you know what it's like. You go right up to the gate, and then you can't go any further. Now, standing before the gate, I began to understand what, it, especially as a tourist, I began to understand what it means for someone to be unapproachable. You just don't waltz into the and demand to see the queen. Unless she, invites you, unless she invites you in, you're stuck outside. Now, likewise, the curtain in the sanctuary screams loud and clear that God is holy and unapproachable. Asaph also would have noticed all the blood, and there would have been blood everywhere. Even the priests would have been covered with it. He would have watched animals being butchered and slaughtered and burnt on the altar to pay for the sins of the people. And all those sacrifices would have reminded him of one simple thing. God is holy and cannot tolerate sin. God's holiness demands a penalty for sin, and that penalty is death. The animals died on the altar so that God's people wouldn't have to. Now, there's a reminder like that not too far from where I went to class. The Old Bailey is the Center for Criminal Justice in London, and there's a statue of Lady Justice on top of the building. And she holds a sword in her right hand and the scales of justice in her left. And the message is clear. Justice demands a penalty. If you're weighed on the scales and found wanting, the sword will fall. And likewise, the blood on the altar screams loud and clear that God is holy and demands a penalty for sin. Now, when Asaph went into the sanctuary, he wasn't thinking, "Woo, I'm safe. He was thinking one wrong step and I'm dead. The sanctuary wasn't a shelter, it was a slaughterhouse. And it served as a graphic demonstration of the holiness of God. The Levite bouncers and the heavy curtain reminded him that approaching a holy God is potentially fatal business. 
The Levite butchers and the bloody altar reminded him that a holy God demands a penalty for sin. When Asaph entered the sanctuary, he quite literally saw what would happen to the wicked. And that's why Asaph writes in verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So let's go back to the question we asked at the start. Why bother with Christianity if people seem to be doing just fine without it? Because when you factor a holy God into the equation, they're not doing fine at all. They're actually in a lot of trouble. When Asaph comes to grips with the holiness of God in the sanctuary, he realizes where all the wicked will end up. Have a look at verse 18 and 19 again. They will fall to ruin. They'll be destroyed in a moment. They'll be swept away. Now, I know these are hard things to hear, but if the God of the Bible is real, then all of us one day will stand before a holy God. And I'd be doing you a great disservice if I didn't tell you that. And we'd be doing ourselves a great disservice if we pretend it won't happen. Now, I used to walk across London Bridge every day to go to class, and it's one of the busiest bridges in London. Thousands of people commute across it every day. And at least once a week, at one end of the bridge, a a well-dressed young man would stand there handing out Christianity leaflets and trying to warn anyone who would listen about the judgment to come. Now, my first reaction was probably the same as yours, ignore the crazy man and keep walking. But then I had to check myself. Here are thousands of people walking across the bridge. How many of them know that they have an appointment with a holy God? What am I doing to tell them? Christians are in just as much trouble as everyone else. Did you notice that? This may come as a surprise to you, but Asaph, the exemplary Christian, counts himself as among the wicked. Have a look down with me at verse 21, if you would. Verse 21 says this. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. The sanctuary is a bit of a wake-up call for Asaph. As he realizes just how holy God is, he realizes that he's no better than the wicked. He deserves to be swept away with them. Now, if all we ever do is compare ourselves to others, we'll never see the extent of our own wickedness. We'll see that we're better than some people, and we may take security in that. We may think, surely God will see that I'm not as bad as that person. And we may think our friends are okay. If your friends are anything like my friends, they're kind and generous and decent people. Surely God will see they're not all that bad. If that's how we're thinking, then we simply have not understood just how holy God is. God sent his own son, Jesus, to death on a cross because a penalty had to be paid for sin. God's holiness demanded it. And if the sanctuary was a graphic demonstration of God's holiness, then the cross is even more so. If you ever find yourself doubting that God is deadly serious about sin, then look at the cross and be sure of it. God put his own son to death to satisfy the requirements of his holiness. 
That's how serious God is about sin. Now we can pay for our sins when we go to meet God or we can let Jesus do that for us. But one way or another, someone must pay for them. That's what it means for God to be holy. Now, the story doesn't end there. Thankfully, Psalm 73 doesn't end at verse 22. I know so far it's been all bad news, but here's the good news. If we acknowledge our sins before God, he will deal with us kindly. And that's a promise you can take to the bank. Asaph knows he's no better than the wicked. He deserves to be swept away with them. And he acknowledges this to God. And he says in verse 22, I was like a beast toward you. But God doesn't treat him as he deserves to be treated. God shows him undeserved kindness. Look at how verse 23 begins. Nevertheless, Now, that's a wonderful word to hear when you know you're in trouble. The word you don't want to hear is therefore. Nevertheless, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. This is grace, undeserved kindness. Asaph deserves to be swept away, but instead God holds him and guides him. Asaph should be terrified about meeting a holy God, but instead God promises to receive him to glory. This is why everyone should bother with Christianity. Because forgiveness is available to anyone who acknowledges his sins before God. This is why Christianity is good news. God's holiness demands a penalty for sin, but that penalty was paid when Jesus died on the cross. And that's why we can be forgiven. And that's why we can face a holy God, not with fear, but with confidence that we will be received to glory. As we close, let's go back to the questions we asked at the start. Why should my friend from high school bother with Christianity? Why should our friends and colleagues bother with it? Because when you factor in a holy God into the equation. Forgiveness is our greatest need. Christians are just as wicked as everyone else. The only difference is that Christians have acknowledged their wickedness before God and have asked for forgiveness. This is what it means to be near God, and this is what it means to make God our refuge. And where we stand with God, will, God now will determine where we end up in eternity. That's what Asaph says in verses 27 and 28. Have a look down with me if you would. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Now your friends and colleagues may be doing just fine now and they may not be as bad as some people And they may be taking refuge in that. But there is only one safe place when we go to meet a holy God. And that is taking refuge in the forgiveness that is available through Jesus' death on the cross. This is true grace and this is true generosity. Anything else we might ask or receive from God cannot compare to what he's already given us. And if we remember that, we should be able to say with Asaph, but as for me, 
It is good to be near God. Let's pray together.